welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In this episode, we're joined by Cecilia Stanton-Adams, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer with Allianz Life. In her role, she leads strategy development and implementation for diversity and inclusion, both internally for employees and externally for customers, partners, vendors, and the community. She also oversees community relations and corporate giving strategies for the company. And prior to joining Allianz Life, Cecilia was CEO of the Stanton Adams Diversity Institute, where she provided services to improve strategic workforce planning, recruiting and retention, training and development, supplier diversity, and cultural competence. And prior to that, she was the Director of Talent Acquisition and Diversity for Buffalo Wild Wings, where she led the development and implementation of an enterprise-wide diversity and inclusion strategy. Mike and I thoroughly enjoyed our time with Cecilia. As a matter of fact, we enjoyed it so much that we joked um, really in, in some sincerity that this podcast episode could have easily been two hours. And with that, um, there is a strong likelihood we'll want to have Cecilia back on just to dig in maybe even deeper to some of the topics that we covered in this episode. Specifically, we talked a lot about um, Cecilia's background and upbringing, how she ended up in the DNI space, and some of her early ex- experiences as a child that led to her being really interested in a lot of these topics. And then we transitioned into talking more about some of her professional and corporate experience. We covered a variety of topics from how DNI has changed changed, um, you know, over the years, especially since she first started in this field of work. We talked about um, the importance of prioritizing this work and sometimes why it can be a little slow in getting off the ground within organizations. So just a, a couple examples of, of some really um, important and meaty topics that we covered during this interview that we feel like you are thoroughly going to enjoy as much as Mike and I did. So thank you again to all of our listeners for supporting the work that we're doing with this podcast. As always, be sure to give us feedback. Let us know what you like, other topics you may want Mike and I to cover, folks you may want us to interview. And with that, I will leave you to enjoy the episode. All right, Cecilia, so great to have you here today. Thanks for your willingness to join Mike and I for this episode. If you wouldn't mind starting out by sharing with our listeners a little bit about your background and, you know, then really end with kind of how you ended up in the DNI space. Great. Thank you, Jesse. Yes. Um, so I was actually born and raised in New York City, and both of my parents are from Honduras. And um, my, my mom came over when she was five with my grandmother. And it's funny because I was able to find the ship's itinerary. And it said that she, when she came over, she had um, one suitcase and my mom. And so I was thinking, what could she possibly have had in that suitcase? Um, you know, it, mine would have been full of shoes. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it really is humbling just to think about starting a whole new life um, with your child and, and wanting to make a, a future for your next generations. But my dad came over 
when he was already in his 20s, he'd already, you know, um, married his first wife and had about five kids. So he was the first to come over and he likes to tell the story of being um, in a silk suit because he wanted to be dressed as best clothes. And he gets off of the plane in January winter. And as you can imagine, January, it's pretty freezing in New York City. And so that silk suit, it wasn't so fashionable at that point. You know, I'm sure he was looking for a, 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 a lined coat at that point. <laughs> so they met in a department store uh, when they were uh, working a job together. And, you know, my, my father had gotten divorced and my mom was, was also, um, you know, divorced from her first marriage they got together and they were like, you know, let's, let's do this thing, you know? So they, they got together and brought like eight kids. So it was eight of us. Um, and then, so I was born and then my brother came shortly thereafter. And so nine kids in total, you can just imagine all of the fun that we had on uh, <laughs> holidays, which was really great. But, you know, being a part of such a large family, it always made me think about like, how can I stand out? So I was the extroverted one in the family and I always liked to do new things. So I was always the one that had friends from different backgrounds and we would get together and play music and, you know, eat different foods. And that really gave me a love and a recognition for culture and on how different it is uh, depending on what country you came from. In New York City, your, your nationality was really, really strong. You know, it was really important part of your pride. And so when I left to go to college later on, I took that pride of diversity with me. And, you know, when my advisor asked me, what is it that you want to major in? What do you want to focus on in your life? And, and I said, diversity. And she said, well, that's, that's not really a, you know, a thing. You're like, we don't have that as a major, but um, there's other you know, areas that you might wanna go into. So I was very fascinated by psychology because psychology is all about the development of self. And you know, just like myself, I was going through my own journey of you know, figuring out who I am and what, what my identity was. You know, I was raised by this family that had traditional beliefs um, that came from, you know, another country and, and um, religion was a big part of that. But then I was raised in the United States where, you know, being an American teenager meant being independent and, and doing, doing new and different things. So I, I always struggled in the early years of figuring out who am I, right? And how much um, does the Latino culture play a part and how much does the, the American part play a part? Um, so I took that into my studies of psychology and I started to um, do research on things like how slavery in, um, you know, historical slavery here in the United States impacted the self-esteem of, of Black women. And so, you know, that just gives you an idea of, of how uh, cerebral I was at the time. Like, I just really wanted to delve into really deep topics. And, um, you know, what I saw was just this connection to, you know, when I was reading a lot of studies that, around psychology that, you know, Black women um, are, you know, struggling with a lot of the same things that you would see in, in um, you know, earlier parts of the centuries, like especially after slavery, right? When everybody um, was freed and people had to make a life for themselves. 
Um, you know, broken families are, are a huge part of what comes from, you know, what we know about slavery. You know, it was typical for for mothers to be separated from their um, partners, as well as from their children during slavery. And so, you know, afterwards, women became a strong sense of the home, you know, that they were the ones that said, okay, let's, let's bring everyone together um, and, and really had to keep that focus on, you know, that next step, you know, trying to get educated, trying to lift themselves up out of the struggle. So I wanted to understand that um, much more deeply. I also wanted to understand how um, identity played a part in, in whether you stayed in college, because I found that a lot of uh, people of color, especially if you came from lower socioeconomic status, um, people wouldn't stay at college. They had a lot of competing demands, um, lots of other things to consider. And so often they had to put their schooling on the wayside. And so I really wanted to understand what can we do differently to help support these, um, th these folks that maybe don't have the traditional experience of a student um, that wouldn't have any kind of obligations, um, but how do we support them so that they can be successful as well? Now, when I was um, 20 years old, I had my daughter. So when I was in college, you know, I had a little one and, and that was something that was definitely important to me. And so I was able to work with the leadership of the college at the time to think about, you know, child care back when it wasn't really a thing to be talked about, like, um, you know, early childhood development, right? Because as a young mother, like, how do, how do I now instill new, um, you know, new thinking into my daughter that maybe I didn't even have, uh, you know, the, uh, the opportunity to be exposed to. So you know, those, those areas really gave me a lot of joy around psychology. And um, my advisor said, you know, probably in my third year, you've got a lot of potential and you need to consider taking this further. And I always thought, you know, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a job with benefits, right? Health benefits. That was going to be success for me. But she said, you know, consider going to graduate school and do some research, um, you know, and explore that. And that wasn't anything that I even, you know, considered before. So I applied to all these PhD programs and I did get into a pre-doctoral fellowship at Lehigh University out in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Now, Lehigh was very different from Bloomfield College, where I did my undergrad, because it was a predominantly white um, university. The students there also came from well-to-do families. So, you know, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, people that have gone through college through generations. And so I was, I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb and I was there to study stereotyping. So I was in the lab um, collecting uh, data around unconscious bias. And back then I was like, nobody's ever going to care about this research. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm bringing all these, these participants in and they're doing these reaction time studies. Um, and so I was like, you know, I really don't like being behind a computer. I wanted to figure out how do I actually take what I'm learning and actually apply it. And especially when I saw the research come back to say that um, we do uh, have unconscious biases, that we categorize people based on their gender, their race, 
um, their socioeconomic status within milliseconds. So not even a full minute, right? Within milliseconds, our brain is quickly making judgments about who we are. I wanted to take that information and make it accessible because I felt like where it really mattered was in the workplace, right? And in places where you know, we were making important decisions about including more diverse community members. So that was something that really uh, caught my attention and something I spend a lot of time on, not only because it was of interest for me, but it was also for my survival of being able to get through um, those next four years of, of college at Lehigh. I ended up getting my master's in sociology, and I also left with knowledge around diversity training. And this was because uh, a very special mentor took an interest in me at Lehigh, and he was an African professor. He was teaching a class to seniors. Um, it was called Diversity 101. And uh, he knew that I had an interest in this area, and he said, you know, why don't you co-teach with me? And he didn't have to do this, right? He didn't need an assistant, but he actually took me under his wing. And week by week, we introduced different topics to the class. We did interactive ex exercises, and he allowed me to present so many um, of the different things that I was coming across. So by the time I graduated from Lehigh, I knew what I was doing around diversity and inclusion. It was like, I knew it. I knew this was going to be a path for me. And so... I really wanted to turn my focus and in looking at how do we support students who are very much like me, who are underrepresented in predominantly white, um, you know, institutions, how do we help them to be successful? Um, after several years of, of doing that work within um, college, one of my uh, advisors in graduate school, also who I kept in contact with, said to me, you know, why don't you consider corporate America? because a lot of what you've been studying and talking about also applies to the workplace. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's not easy, right? Just jump right in. Well, as you can imagine, the culture as at an educational institution and university is very different than a corporation. And so I really hit up against a lot of cultural barriers, um, you know, not only because I was first generation in everything, right? So I didn't have parents who can help me navigate this, this corporate structure and, you know, my career path. But um, also, you know, I was used to research and they were like, no, we want to hear you talk about diversity in terms of the return on investment, right? How is it going to bring value to the company? And I struggled with that for a long time because what I was doing diversity was a personal reason. I wanted to help people that were like me, you know, community members that were like me. And in that argument, I felt like that meant that we were just um, really thought about as in terms of dollars. But, you know, through my, um, my experiences in corporations, I realized that 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 wasn't just the case, right? Yeah, we could actually, you know, make more money with multicultural markets, but we also could give access to people from multicultural backgrounds to get jobs in places that, you know, could give them a really great living where they could get access to things like financial literacy and, you know, start to buy products and things that wouldn't have been available to them prior. So I kind of took that on as my mission um, to figure out, you know, how do we best integrate folks um, into corporate America that don't necessarily have that background um, and that experience and, and that they need the help to navigate those unwritten rules. 
And um, from there, I, you know, made my career, 15, 20 year career in this space. And um, I love it. There's been days where it's been a struggle, especially this year. But um, what I've come to learn is that diversity is not just a career choice. It's a calling. So regardless of where I am, I'm always going to be drawn back to this work. Um, and, and I'm just thankful for it. So there's so much that I want to unpack there. I just am, love your story. Um, but before we start unpacking it, can you, during that 15 to 20 year career that you've had so far, you had mentioned when you and I talked uh, prior to, you know, as a, as a preparation for this interview about how you had moved from corporate America to consulting and then kind of back to corporate America. So can you just share with our listeners a little bit about that journey and maybe even some of like the pros and cons that you experienced as a professional in the DNI space in both of those kind of professional scenarios? Yeah. Well, actually, my first um, corporate job was at Allianz Life, which, you know, my story kind of takes me back full circle to Allianz. But I was there in um, probably around 2003 is when we started to deal with the recession, right? So people started losing their homes um, and it impacted organizations around the country. And so Allianz was no different. We had to go through several um you know, layoffs and, and uh, you know, people had to leave jobs that they loved to do because, you know, it just was the environment where, you know, you, you just couldn't make it as an organization if you had a, a lot of spend, especially when it came to um, talent. And so probably about the third or fourth iteration of layoffs, um, they made cuts to the multicultural marketing area as well as the diversity and inclusion and um, and Allianz was not like any other, you know, lots of other companies that had to do the same thing. Well, luckily enough, since I had the background in education, I had a pivot, right? So I knew that I had connections and networks within the education space. And so I was able to get a faculty job. And that helped me to, you know, keep me afloat and think about, you know, what is that next step for me? And um, what I started to uh, notice was that, you know, more people were calling me for little jobs here and there, like come in and do a diversity training for us, you know, and Hennepin County was one of those, um, those organizations that reached out, they wanted me to come in and do an unconscious bias training. And um, I didn't know this then, but they became my first client in um, my business that my wife and I then uh, started, the Stanton Adams Consulting um, Practice. It's now evolved into the Diversity Institute. And, um, you know, they became a client of ours for probably about seven years. And um, it, it was really great because we got a chance to um, really work our curriculum, you know, developing the coursework that we knew that was going to be um, that was going to be effective in helping people understand cultural differences. Um, you know, we had a lot of great interactive exercises that get, got people to embody what it's like to be someone that's that's different, right? To be the minority within a group. And, you know, that was fun because I was getting to do it within lots of different types of organizations. And, you know, I'd already explored corporate and, and education. So I also got to work with nonprofit organizations and um, tech startups, which started to become very popular. And uh, I realized that, you know, even though the cultures were very different, the strategies weren't. 
because many of these organizations were dealing with the same issues. They weren't able to um, attract a diverse population um, within their talent workforce, retain people that stayed with the organization long-term. Um, development was a challenge. You know, how do you prepare these younger generations to um, accelerate their learning, to move into positions far faster than um, generations prior? And so, you know, that, that was really good for me because it made me very flexible, adaptable, and agile, right? And, and to think in terms of, you know, how do you take a model that you know works and just um, make those tweaks so that it really is customized to the culture of the organization that you're working with. Um, and so that was awesome. Um, of course, every time, you know, I would get with, a, with one of these different clients, there would always be one that's like, hey, we want to bring you in-house. And, you know, when you're doing this work over a period of time, um, you really get involved with your client. And, you know, sometimes it works out where you actually get to do that. So I, um, I got to go to Buffalo Wild Wings um, for that very same reason. And I got to lead their diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, and so my career trajectory kind of found me um, kind of pivoting and bouncing in and out of these different spaces. And now, you know, I look back and I think, Thank goodness, because we're in this space now where it's all about the pivot. It's all about staying resilient and, um, and preparing yourself for a world that you might not even be in today. Well, that's what I did when I, you know, thought about diversity as a place that I wanted to, to settle in with my career. So it's given me a lot of practice. Um, I'm definitely not perfect at it. I still like my comfort zone, um, but it's definitely uh, given me more options that um that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. Hey Cecilia, when you were out there and you were consulting with these these clients and you said that they would they'd want to bring you in house. So you probably had offers like that, but you mentioned Buffalo Wild Wings. What about an organization made you say, you know what, I will plant my feet here for a little bit? Was it certain a certain project or something that you saw within that organization that could um kind of carry on your mission or your calling? Yes. So, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings was a very large, complex organization. Um, they had uh, locations all across the United States and internationally. So, you know, those were experiences that I hadn't had before. And I wanted to be able to, to see more of that and be more involved in that work. So, you know, they actually opened um, uh, a restaurant in a couple of overseas offices. And I got a chance to work with the people that were going over there and helping to prepare them to adapt to the culture. Um, so that was interesting for me to learn about, you know, what diversity and inclusion looks like from a global perspective. And, and that, you know, the, the communities and, and minority, majority um, ways that we think about things here in the United States aren't necessarily the same, right? So there's different cultural groups when you look at different countries, but the dynamic is still the same. You still have folks that, you know, um, you know, are the majority culture that maybe are in power that make the decisions. And then you have smaller groups that are trying to fight for um, their way in in that um, in that space so they can have jobs so they can, you know, have the, the things that they need for their families to thrive. And so that was an important learning for me that I wouldn't had without being a part of an international organization. I also loved that company because you know, they were a very diverse organization when it came to the lower levels 
of their staff. So when you think about um, waiters, waitresses, hostesses, cooks, right? All of these folks come from diverse communities. So, you know, about 60% of their staff were people of color. And yet when you looked at the higher levels of leadership, that just wasn't being reflected. And so I found an opportunity there to help to create a pipeline and a career path for many of those that wanted to have that, um, that foot in the door to move into a regional director role or maybe to um, move into a role in, in the corporate office. Um, and we worked on a couple initiatives that were really important to me. One was the Women's Leadership Forum, and the other was the um, uh, People of Color Leadership Forum. And we would get together on a monthly basis. We did this virtually, and um, we we focused on topics like you know what it what it means to have a strategic outlook of the company. What does it mean to be fin- um, to have financial acumen? Um, what does it mean to you know forecast the future when it comes to the business? So we weren't teaching things like just like confidence, right? Which is really important presentation skills. You need that, but you also need to understand how to have that business mindset um, in order to stand out in the interviews. So you know, I love being a part of that and being helped, being able to help many people um, move up in their career paths. You know, since you've been in this DNI space for as long as you have, and you know, something that kind of made me smile was when you were talking about being in your, I think it was your graduate program, and you were wanting to study or you did study unconscious bias. And I was thinking to myself, was that even a term that was like a thing back then? You know, I mean, because that's that's a term that's heavily used these days, especially in the DNI space. So maybe it was a, a very popular term, or maybe you were well ahead of you know, well ahead of kind of where we're at right now, Cecilia, which is amazing. But when you think about the work that you were doing in graduate school, and then now where we're at now, you know, especially with this modern day civil rights movement, and a lot of the stuff that's happened following the death of Mr. Floyd, I mean, how have you seen the DNI space change over the course of the last 15, 20 years? Well, I think you know, that experience really sheds a light on, on something that's really important when we think about solutions to the modern day issues, right? We in our sectors work so much within our silos, right? So in educational institutions, you know, in, in research institutions, you're focused on, you know, publishing and doing your research and collecting that data and making sense of it to your peers. But a lot of that information is so valuable for those folks that are actually doing work on a day-to-day basis. And so it was really great to see that the diversity space started to consider um, this idea of bias, right? And, you know, we always talked about bias and phobias and things like that. But, you know, what, what it did is it allowed the industry to introduce this term of unconscious bias, that we um, make judgments about people quickly within milliseconds and it's not even based on what we personal personally believe but what we've been socialized to believe so as a young person right so you know just coming into the world as a woman as a girl I was taught what it means to be a girl, that I wear pink, that I wear my hair in, in pigtails, that I you know, keep my legs closed when I'm, when I'm wearing our dress, that I'm well-behaved. And these things are all ingrained in who I am. So not only do I try to hold myself up to the standard of what society says I need to be as a, as a female, but I look to others, other females, and I say, are you doing it right? Are you doing it right? I hold others accountable to what I've, I've heard in the media um, and in the community. 
community. And so through life, you learn sometimes that this doesn't make sense, right? So what I'm learning about being a female, like that's just not about being a, a female. Like I could do anything that I want, but I'm still carrying that knowledge that females and women are supposed to have a certain place. So now when I come onto an aircraft and I see that the, um, that the pilot is a woman, I might be shocked, right? Now I'm a diversity expert, right? So I, I love diversity and I love seeing um, various different groups being represented, but it's still a shock to me because um, when I was growing up, when I was being socialized, that wasn't a normal thing. Right. We're taught that that's not the place for women when it comes to career paths. So even myself, you know, I, I have that same reaction. And one of the things my wife said, which I really loved, was that we're not responsible for our first reaction. They're automatic. Right. So it's going to happen. But we are responsible for that second thought and our behavior thereafter. That's what we can control. And so with unconscious biases, I mean, that's that's what we got to do is, is be more aware of when those biases are showing up. Yeah, I'm glad that, uh, Jess, that you'd brought that up. And the last thing you just said there um, about, because I was going to ask, that was one of the questions I wrote down was, how can we change unconscious bias when it's unconscious? But I think you just answered it in saying that, I don't know if you can change that, but it's 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 after Right. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how you can maybe have mental cues or or just recognize your own unconscious bias and then think about how, you know, how I react after that is really what's important. Yeah. So, you know, think back to 9-11 and, you know, my family's from um, New York City. So that was, you know, a, a huge impact to to the state and, and to my family there. And I weren't, I wasn't living there at the time, but you know, I would, I probably was able to go there within the year of it happening. And I remember going to a building where I had to get on an elevator and there was a, a man, a gentleman who got on the elevator with me and he was Muslim. You know, I can tell from, you know, kind of how he was dressed. And when the, the elevator do- doors closed, I got this lurch in my stomach of fear because everything in the media was telling me about, you know, what to believe about the Muslim community, right? And even hearing it on the news, I knew, you know, no, this is not true. You can't use one um, thing to, you know, paint a broad brush across a community. But these are the cues, right? The triggers that, that are now built in me because of seeing all of this news media over the course of a really short period of time. So I'm on that elevator, right? The doors close and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like is something bad going to happen to me? And, you know, luckily that next thought, I was like, how ridiculous is that? Like, that is so ridiculous. And, you know, I just had to talk myself down and just say, you know, he's, he's a man like any, you know, everybody else doing their business. And sure enough, you know, his floor came and he got off the elevator and went about his business. And, you know, we would see many people have those exact same experiences of now feeling like, oh, my gosh, you know, do I have to fear my neighbors, Um, you know, because, you know, could they be a part of of some of this? And hopefully many people step back from that, you know, from the stress and the chaos of all of that. And we say, you know, um, that's that's really not going to serve us. We can't paint a broad brush over a group of people. I mean, we're seeing it now with COVID and the bias that's happening um, within our Asian community um, and people just walking down the street and, and um, you know, being harassed um, because, you know, they're 
being uh, blamed for COVID-19. Like that's, that's ridiculous. And so we, we have to um, make sure that we're, we're calling ourselves on that and we're questioning ourselves and we can't necessarily do it all the time, but do it when it matters. So, you know, when I'm reviewing resumes and, you know, I'm making a decision about who to bring in, you know, I'm going to be swayed because someone, you know, graduated from Lehigh University. Well, hey, Lehigh grads, we're the bomb, you know? So all of a sudden I'm like, this person's going to get this job unconsciously, right? So I might still go through the process and think that I'm being unfair and, and unjudgmental, but in fact, you know, I've already got this link made. So that's why it's important, you know, when I'm making those decisions that I have other people that are also interviewing so that they can balance me out, that they can add their perspective to the table, right? And, and so that, um, so that people, when they're, when they're getting, um, you know, jobs, when they're getting uh, homes, right, when they're getting into apartments, that they're not, um, bias is not standing in the way of them being able to have a great life for themselves and for their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I, your examples were on point. So, th- and thank you for giving a personal example too. That, that elevator example was excellent. Um. So I kind of want to switch and transition just a little bit more into some of your opinions kind of in the corporate space or really as a consultant too in the, in the corporate space from a DNI perspective. So, you know, what would you say, Cecilia, in your opinion has made it so hard for some organizations to get DNI efforts off the ground or to prioritize DNI efforts? And I have a tendency to add lots of questions into a question. So I'm going to be careful here, but that's kind of question number one. But I'm also curious because I think it's linked is, do you have an opinion on if an employer does have a person dedicated to DNI, who that person reports to? Do you feel like that impacts kind of question number one? You know, obviously diversity and inclusion is, is, is a big word, right? And it encompasses a lot of things. So I think the first thing that we need to do is really define for ourselves, what does it mean? Are we talking about people of color? Are we talking about women? Are we talking about people with disabilities? You know, a lot of times organizations spend a lot of time spinning um, in this space of, okay, we're going to do these events or we're going to try to do more recruiting, but they haven't even defined for themselves what diversity means to them as an organization. So, you know, first steps is defining what does it mean to the organization? What are the values that are important to us and, and why, you know, we want to uphold this? And what is our business case? And making sure that all business leaders within the organization understand that business case as a priority. Um, when, you, when you haven't had that in place, you're going to spin out for a long period of time and not have the success. Now, if you are doing those things, I want you to look to examples like a Target or General Mills. I mean, this, they've been doing DNI work for um, decades and they still have lots of work to do. So when you're early on in the stages, know that this isn't going to be an overnight, right? That you're not going to, um, you know, spend three years on this and then it's going to be done. You know, many people I've heard say, you know, this is going to be great when we no longer have to have a focus on diversity because it's going to be 
you know, woven into everything that we do. Well, that's a pipe dream that will not happen. That's like saying, you know, one day finances is going to be woven to the organization where we won't need a CFO. That's not going to happen, right? It's actually going to be more and more important. And it, it means that organizations, when they go through challenges, can't look to cutting DNI budgets and staffing um, because it's no longer optional. Right? It has to be a part of the organization, the business strategies and things that we're doing until it starts to become a part of the strategies of the organization. It's always going to be that second priority. It's, it's always going to be that thing that, you know, we do when we have time. And so long as it's on the shelf, it's not going to have that traction that you need. So let's say you have that in place. I think it's important for organizations to then seek out the expertise that they need in order to go to that next space, right? You know, instead of, you know, coming around together, the same people come together and they say, okay, how are we going to do this differently? Well, this, there's nothing different here, right? You haven't infused any new information. So look for those experts that can come in and help you to understand the frameworks that are, that are gonna help you um, understand diversity in a more simplistic way. So I'll give you an example. The IDI does a good job of this and it's the Intercultural Development Inventory. It's, it's a, um, a concept that was then made into an assessment. So you can take this as an individual and see where you fall on, on the assessment or maturity scale. But it's also a way to think about your organization. So there's five scales, five levels within that scale. One is denial. Denial means that you have no idea about diversity and inclusion. It's not even a thing that you think about. So when, you know, situations like George Floyd happens, you were thinking, well, you know, this is a situation of a bad guy who did a bad thing. But you don't see it as a race issue. You don't see the systemic um, issues that are involved that, that are so complex. So that's somebody that's in denial. Is that a bad person? No, right? Because at some point we were in denial about lots of things. And we are in denial right now about some things, right? So it's just about being exposed. As soon as we get exposed, right? So for many of us, it was the George Floyd situation. It was a huge eye opener for people that weren't, you know, involved in this space. Um, you know, and I heard many people saying, wow, like I didn't realize race was such an issue still. I thought when, you know, Obama was president that we had gotten past this, and they were also surprised to hear from their people of color counterparts that were like, yeah, no, like this has been our lives, you know, for forever. And so it's this realization that comes about and you move into that next phase, which is polarization. And polarization is where you kind of take a side and think about it, right? If you have no understanding of it, you're in denial. And then now you start to learn. The first thing that you're going to do is take a side on it right? Either I believe it or I don't believe it. And your beliefs are going to be strong around it. So polarize is the word that we use, you know, when we talk about our political um, environment, right? We have polarized thinking. So it's good in that you're not in denial anymore. You know it exists, but you're polarized. So it means that you're only seeing a part of the story and, you know, you're only kind of reinforcing your own beliefs. And so you need to then expose yourself to this a little bit more, 
when you start to do that, right? So we did listening sessions after the George Floyd um, incident happened where we got to listen to our employees talk about their own experiences and reactions. And what that did for people who was who were in polarization was say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm very different from this person who's a person of color, who's white, or, you know, who's a person with disabilities, has disabilities, but, you know, I relate to them. I relate to them because they're scared, just like me, because they have to talk about race with their kids, just like me. And then you move into that next space, which is minimization, where, you know, you're not just doing this us and them thing. You're saying, oh, it's us together. It's a we, right? You're minimizing those differences and you're really focusing on the similarities. And many of us within the country and especially Minnesota, we fall into that, right? We, we, we all bleed blood, red blood, right? Um, we all are just the same underneath. And while that's great thinking, it's also flawed thinking because it doesn't make room for the real differences that culturally divide us, right? Our cultural values that shape how we make decisions and how we think about things like retirement. You know, uh, we're looking at that here in our organization. And, you know, for those who are born and raised in the United States, you think of retirement as, you know, save a lot of money, get to 65, retire, go golfing and traveling around, right? But for folks that, you know, come from a collectivistic culture like Latinos and Asians, um, when you get to the age of retirement, your um, sons and daughters are responsible for you, right? So you might move in to, um, you know, one of your children's households and they then resume, assume the responsibility of taking care of you. So you, you might think of how you have to save for retirement differently, and so for those financial advisors who we're working with, we want to make sure that they understand those cultural differences, right? So, so that they're not falling into that minimization category and saying, okay, what works for me is going to work for you. They're actually saying, no, we have true differences. And that's when you move into acceptance, right? Acceptance is when we really can understand diversity for the complexity that it brings, for the intersectionality that we all have, right? Because no one of us can think of ourselves as just a female or, you know, a Black person or, you know, a, a corporate uh, executive. I experience all those things at the same time. So it's important that we realize that. The last stage is integration. And that's something that's, it's kind of like a pipe dream every day, right? That you hope to be in this space of integration where not only do you recognize the complexity, but you're actually making strategic decisions that help us to move beyond those systemic barriers that have been in place, where we actually start to see when the biases um, are coming up within our decision-making processes and that we use our voice to actually, you know, um, make changes within those systems. So, you know, it's a simple way of understanding diversity maturity, but it's a framework that now you can say, oh, okay, so where do I personally think I fall? And where might there be room for me to, to improve? And then as an organization, where do we fall? And it's funny because most people say they're in acceptance when most people are in immunization. And, um, but they always say that their organization is um, behind themselves. So they always rate themselves far higher than the organization. But remember, we're a culmination of all the people, right? So if all of us are still struggling in minimization, our organization is not going to get past that, right? It's the people that drive us into that for those further stages of maturity. 
I said a lot there, but no, I do that, know that you, you had a second part. Love that you broke it down into steps. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is a process. And as you were talking, it's like, I kind of look back and think of the, this, the, the places I was in. And unfortunately I found myself maybe not as far down as what I thought I, I may be. Yeah. So I, I appreciate laying it out like that. And um, I know there was another question before I forget, how do you see the media playing a role within DNI and within those steps? Cause to me, when I heard you say media a lot um, throughout this so far. And when I think about it, like I feel like the media sometimes thrives on that polarization. And so, but I'm really curious to hear how you feel that it, it impacts good or bad. Yeah. You know, the media has taken on a new life, especially with the advent of social media. So we're connected to others from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. I mean, literally that cell phone is attached to my hand. It's the first way that, you know, the first thing that I'm doing is connecting in with the, with the world. And so I'm also taking in all of those messages. And we can only, you know, process but so many things, right? So it's the first things that we're hearing in the morning that then shapes the trajectory of what we're focusing on for the rest of the day. And, um, you know, to be honest, we're in a time period where we're, we're, um, we're leaning on the news. We're leaning on media because we need information right now. We need to know what to do to remain healthy and safe. We need to know what to do um, to have a better world in terms of racial equity. And, um, and so that means that we're seeking out this information, but you know, um, news organizations are doing a job, right? They're trying to keep our attention and, and to keep our attention, you have to entertain us. And what's entertaining is not necessarily the things that we need to nourish us and to help us make good decisions. And so we need to kind of draw a line there to say, you know, I have to, to really hold media back from being the major decision maker, decision maker in my life. Because, you know, especially I think about those, those times after um, COVID and right after George Floyd where you just glued to CNN and you, you could just feel your feelings go up and down and up and down on this roller coaster ride that they're taking you on. And all you need to do is shut it off, right? Get off of that Facebook. I got off of Facebook for a period of time. And then all of a sudden this equilibrium started to come back, right? Because now I'm, you know, I'm hearing my own voice about what's important to me, about diversity and inclusion, about what I'm passionate about. I'm listening to my family members, right? And what they care about. I'm I'm listening to children and, and, you know, how they're redefining what it means to be educated in this time and space. And now it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I I feel so different. And now the decisions that I'm going to make are going to be very different right? Um, the mindset that I'm going to have is very different. You know, uh, I listened to this podcast that I love um, that talks about changing your thinking. And one of the things that they say is thoughts drive our feelings, drive, drive our actions, which drive our results, right? So whatever it is that's influencing our thoughts, that's going to show up in our life in terms of the results that, that, we're, that we're getting for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. the media plays a big role in, in impacting that. And, you know, um, they're doing their job. That's, that's the thing, right? So we personally have to make a decision to say, you know, when, when are we going to stop consuming that or how much can we consume it? And, um, and also monitoring the people that we're responsible for, like our children, 
making sure that they don't get consumed by it. You know, you think about bullying and all the things that we see in the school systems, you know, that they see online, that they learn online. So how do we kind of take ownership of that back again? I just want to make a comment on what you just shared. And then I also want to um, just kind of share with that or re-ask that second question. And and the comment that I want to make is something that I'm really passionate about. So I'm going to try to keep it concise. I tend to get uh, ranty when I'm really passionate about something. But the comment really about media, and actually for our listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode with Cody Wagner and Rachel Schwalbach from CH Robinson, we encourage you to go and listen to that episode too. We, in that episode, talked um, a little bit about, and Rachel and Cody provided some really great resources for, for example, if you are, you know, your um, media drug of choice is Instagram, for example, you know, that you can maybe think about who you follow on Instagram today, and then maybe think about how those how those influencers, how those people, how those news outlets are impacting the way that you think about what is going on right now during this modern civil day rights movement. And think about how might I diversify who I follow, the news channels I listen to, the people that are influencing my thoughts. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this topic is to the point, Cecilia, that you made is that we do have these devices these cell phones, I know listeners can't see me holding up my phone, um, that are attached at our hip. And so now more than ever, information is literally at our fingertips that we did not have before. But the unfortunate part is, is I almost feel like we're lazier now than we ever have been. And so instead of using the great resources that are provided to us through Facebook, through Instagram, through a Google search, we just tend to rely on the resources we've always relied on. So You know, I hope that there's a lot of nuggets that our listeners take away from this episode, but one thing I really want you all to hear is to leverage what is given to you within social media today and think about how you can choose different outlets that might give you another way to think about something or to influence your thoughts. So that's my soapbox that I tried to keep short. Um, And then to go back to my question is, I was curious what your thoughts, Cecilia, were on um, who DNI reports to within an organization if you feel as though who they report to impacts how DNI gets off the ground within an organization or how serious it's taken. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because um, we've never seen more growth in the DNI space in terms of employment um, than we have these these past couple of years. And um, actually, after COVID, there was a, a steep decline in uh, diversity jobs that were posted. Lots of diversity jobs got pulled down. But and then after George Floyd, you saw that um, that spike again of more organizations looking to put diversity. Um, Uh, folks in place at various different levels. But we're also seeing um, a far greater number of chief diversity officer roles being put in place, um, which is definitely a 
a shift and, and a new trend because organizations are recognizing that when you don't have that leader, um, you know, at the at the top level where you know you're making those leadership decisions, it really is hard to get that traction, right? Because um, you, you need someone that's going to be constantly bringing up, you know, the best practice research and benchmarking and holding leadership accountable. You can't do that from um, you know a diversity council or from an employee resource group. You know, those are great grassroots um, approaches and lots of organizations try to do it from the grassroots uh, approach. But eventually, if you want to see that, um, that, that sustainability in this area, you're going to have to have someone that's actually going to take on that role. Um, I think it's also important who it reports to because that means um, who you have access to, right? So I report to the CEO um, and 60% of chief diversity officers now um, are reporting to their, um, their CEO or someone on the C-suite. So the chief HR officer, um, chief legal counsel, um, but that has given chief, uh, diversity leaders far more access to, um, you know, the decision-making table than ever before. You know, so when we're hiring those, those, important roles at the leadership level, I can be there to say, you know, what, what can we do to diversify this candidate pool, right? Um, when we're talking about our um, growth strategies for the new year, you know, how can we start looking at emerging markets, you know, and, and start to infuse that into the work that we're doing. Um, and so, you know, those conversations haven't been happening on a large scale in the past. Um, and, and so we're seeing that happen. And I think we're going to see a lot more results from it. I love that. Thank you for your opinion on that topic. For organizations that perhaps don't have the luxury of having somebody like yourself dedicated to this topic, what would be your recommendation for those leaders? Yeah, I would say that um, definitely start from the grassroots effort, even though it, it does take time. But if you are starting, um, you know, a pool of employees that, you know, are really passionate about this, look for a, a, an executive leader or senior leader that's a champion. And you're going to find many of them. Those champions are going to help you to create, craft a business case. And then they'll help you figure out who needs to hear that business case so that you can get some traction, so you can get some resources. You know, sometimes it starts with an employee resource groups that wants to form. Um, and so, you know, making sure that you get someone to get to get that buy-in at the top um, that sees it as a priority um, that can then communicate to the organization about what you're trying to do and what's happening. Um, and then you get other people to get involved. Once you start to get that groundswell, you're going to get more of a momentum. And I'm going to tell you in this day and age, um, there isn't going to be an organization whose leader is like, nah, we can wait till next year. We can't. We can't wait till next year. So if you're passionate about this work and you're not doing it in your organization now, um, bring it up and, and get, that, um, get that work moving. All right. I have one other topic that I, I feel like is a juicy one that maybe we can just kind of wrap things up with that um, I've been thinking about a lot lately. Specifically, you know, when you think about, you mentioned ERGs, Cecilia, and then DNI training. What other things do you feel like employers can do to really help elevate diverse employees, specifically into leadership positions? And then once they're in leadership positions, how do they help them succeed? in those roles? 
Yeah. So sponsorship is something that we're talking a lot about at Allianz Life. And it it's, goes be far beyond mentorship, right? We, we know that when we mentor people, we tend to mentor people like ourselves. And so we already have to push ourselves out of the box with that and, and seek out those people that are not like ourselves. Sponsorship works very much the same, right? So sponsorship is when, um, you know, someone brings up in the room of leaders, hey, you know, we've got a new stretch assignment that's available, who do you think would be good to, to, um, to do it, right? It's that person that's going to put your name on the table, right? Because it's not going to pop up just because, right? Because you're on this magical list. It's going to pop up because somebody knows you, they know your work, and they care about your development. They see the potential in you. And so it's important that if we're in a, a leadership role and we have that, that power, that access, that you're seeking out those people with high potential that reflect that diversity that you want to see and sponsor them, right? Find out what they're good at, you know, what they want to see in their career path and help to open doors for them. Um, for those of you who are, you know, making a way in your career, look for those sponsors, look for those people that take an interest in you, um, you know, meet up with people and do informational interviews. It's an opportunity for you not to only learn about them, but for you to also share what you're passionate about and, you know, how what they have access to might help you. And you'll be surprised, you know, when you meet with people and you tell them what they, what you want to do, um, they're willing to oftentimes open up their network and, um, and help you to get to that next phase in life. So I love to see more of that grow in the next coming year, sponsorship across differences. So uh, like I've said before, I could just talk about this topic, especially with you. You, you are just a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I can speak for Mike and I that um, just love your passion on this topic, too. So thank you so much, Cecilia. Um, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I do want to – I just – I want to I go back just a couple things that I learned, and, and it goes back to almost the first thing you said about um, your parents had come from Honduras, and you found the um, the ship – well, you've, the ship's itinerary, yeah. Yeah, the ship's itinerary, and and you mentioned that they came with one suitcase, and I thought I was like, man, that is like a really cool question to think about on your own. Like, if you had to start over, what would you put in your suitcase? So I like I wrote that down. I think like because we're in a we're in a society now where people need so much of everything, and look what they did. They did an incredible thing with one suitcase. So. I just wanted to point that out because I don't know if you yes. put thought into that and like starting with one suitcase. I thought that was so cool. And then you also had a professor in college that you said took an interest in you and propelled you into where you are. And I hear that so much when I talk to people that have so much success in what they do. And there's always that person. Um, and so that was another thing that I wrote down is like, I think in our where we're at today, like everybody needs to take an interest, even if it's an interest in one person yeah. to help because that really propels them. I love your background. I love what you said today. And I know that our listeners are, are probably going to listen to this one a couple times over. I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear it. And hopefully, you know, you can polish me up. <laughs> no polishing required. <laughs> well, thank you so much for even considering me. This is a great honor. Um, and, and I appreciate that you took the time to, to do this with me. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? 
Yes. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, my information is always updated on there. You also can find me at Allianz Life. I'll make sure to give my email address so it's in the show notes. And I'm also coaching a diversity practitioner. So if you want more information on that, you can go to the diversityinstitute.org. We're going to be starting a new coaching class in January, and I'm looking forward to meeting the next generation of diversity leaders. Awesome. Great. Well, best, so best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. 